Hey, man, how are you guys doing? All right, four people awake. Nice. I like it. My name is Marco. I'm the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse Community Church. So if you're new, welcome. So glad to hang out with you. Uh, just a couple of uh, things on your chair. There should be these connect cards. Man, if you're new, we'd love to hang out with you. We'd love to go out to coffee or even just answer some of your questions. Please fill one out. Drop it in the offering basket or in the back connect desk before you leave. Again, we'd love to, to, to hang out. In addition to that, we have Bibles in the rows and in the back seats. Uh, man, if you don't have a Bible or you know someone that would benefit from having a Bible, that is our gift to you and for them. So please, please take one with you before you head out. So we're going to be uh, in Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9 this morning. We actually have a lot of content to walk through this morning. We're, we're going to be uh, kind of unpacking several themes in this one section. It's only nine verses, but they're, but they're pretty dense. Some sections I might go a little bit faster than others, but we'll see when we get there. Um, on top of that, just to kind of give you uh, a recap of where we're at, what's going on. So as you can see, we're in Philippians. We've been in this study uh, of Philippians titled Citizens. Uh, we've been here for the past couple of weeks. Uh, we're coming into chapter four and uh, we're about to start closing our time in this series. This is the section where the Apostle Paul begins to give his final greetings and his final instructions to the church in Philippi. The church in Philippi is a young church and he is writing to them from a Roman prison. And he has been writing to them uh, on several key themes that we have uh, walked through in our time together. He has walked through things like joy. He has walked through things like humility and what our citizenship as Christians in heaven means for us right now. Uh, and like he's done since chapter one, he's going to walk through several more themes. Some of these themes are a little repetitive, but again, as we close chapter four, as we walk into and begin to close chapter four, these are things that he is giving to the Philippian church by way of reminder so that they would hold fast to these truths. And that's some of the language that we're going to encounter today, holding fast or standing firm. He's also going to give us the why we should stand firm and how we should do that, both with biblical application or gospel truths, in addition to things that you and I ought to discern as we are in the world, just not of it. One of the major things that we will also encounter in our time this morning is Paul is going to be using that language that I mentioned about standing firm. It's going to be fighting language because he's ultimately going to be encouraging the Philippians to fight for things. He's going to encourage them to fight to stand, to fight to to, to, to create unity. He's going to uh, encourage them to fight for the peace of God. He's going to encourage them to fight uh, to pray. And part of the reason he does this is because we're going to encounter some uh, lack of unity in, in Philippians 4. So he's going to get really specific for them, and we're going to see how that applies to us uh, in our context Further, uh, throughout this time, even though we're going to walk through these themes, there's going to be really two big hooks uh, in verses 1 through 9 that Paul is going to emphasize. He is going to emphasize that 
We are to have the mind of Christ. It is something that he talks about in Philippians chapter 2. I'll read that briefly. Uh, in, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, he writes, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He is suggesting that we as Christians and the Philippians ought to have one mind as we all fix our eyes on the finished work of Jesus. And in light of the finished work of Jesus, we strive toward that goal. We strive in our sanctification towards fixing our eyes on Christ. And so you're going to hear this language in this section. And uh, the other hook that he's going to talk about is the, the peace of God. That the mind of Christ and the peace of God, although those are things we ought to fight for, ultimately become results in this section. That if we are going to strive for obtaining the peace of God, then we ought to have the mind of Christ first. And if we are uh, a Christian and we say that we do have the mind of Christ, then that means that we have been changed by Christ. It is oddly impossible to say that, man, I follow Jesus but never have been changed by him. And so this is ultimately some of the encouragements that he's going to give us. So I'm going to go ahead and read uh, verses 1 through 9. I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll transition by way of illustration. This is what Paul writes, beginning in verse 1 in chapter 4. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Verse 2. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sintiq to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. God, as we dive into your word, my prayer is, Lord, that you, Holy Spirit, would be present among us, working in us, that you would reveal yourself to us as we look to your word, and that through your Holy Spirit, you would convict us of any sin that we need to repent of that you would challenge our mind and challenge our hearts and challenge our affections through your word. God, we pray that this time would be a time that glorifies you, that would make much of you, and that would force us to decrease. God, I pray that I would be set aside, 
and that it would be you working through me, bringing you all the glory and praise and honor. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. So I've mentioned this before, but uh, if you're new, I'll kind of go through it one more time. So I'm, I'm one of four boys. I'm the youngest in my family. In order, their names are uh, Meme and Joe, David, and then myself. And uh, growing up uh, in a family of four boys at the time doesn't always sound awesome, but looking back, it was pretty awesome uh, in the sense that the house was, uh, something was always going on. Uh, my mom was always getting on us. And uh, at the same time, my mom trusted my eldest brother to kind of uh, uh, like hurt us and lead us and pour into us and help raise us, especially me. Uh, Between him and I, we're 15 years apart. And so she kind of trusted him to make sure uh, things went well. And so one of the things that I don't ever think it was like a formal conversation, but I think one of the things that just landed on his lap was that he was uh, the one who forced us to strive for unity. Because every time my brothers and I would be in a disagreement or we would be getting on one another or someone's head went through the wall, like you could feel that there was tension in the house. You could feel that there was tension between us and then that tension eventually poured out into my parents or if we had family or friends over, it would ultimately pour out into them. And so Meme was always tasked with the unique gift of grabbing us by our necks, sitting us down and saying, there's beef right now. Stop lying to me. Don't talk because I'm talking. There's beef. Something's going on. You need to address it. And I'm not going to let you go back to whatever it is you were doing until you address this beef. And I hated him for that. Because now that meant we needed to put everything on the table. Now that meant we needed to work on our stuff. And uh, at the time, as I mentioned earlier, I don't think I would have articulated it this way as a 9 or 10 or even 15-year-old. But uh, he was pushing us to fight for unity. I think in his mind, he would just say, I was being a brother and I was getting annoyed. But nevertheless, he was pushing us to fight for unity pushing us to be of the same mind. Likewise, we're going to see Paul do the same thing in this section. Even though he is writing to the Philippians from a church, or excuse me, from a prison in Rome, he is going to lovingly encourage him with some strong words to fight for unity, among other things. But before they could fight for unity, he has to remind them, or he does in fact remind them, to stand firm. And he does so with endearing language. And so let's park at verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord my beloved. That word, we're going to get nerdy, and I think some of the notes are going to be up here, right? Maybe? No. Anyway, uh, we're going to get a little, a little technical here. So that word, therefore, it implies that he's coming to a conclusion, but he's coming to a conclusion in light of something he's already said. So when we look at chapter 2, he walked us through various examples of humility. And we, when, when we walked into chapter 3, he walked us through various seasons or examples of what it looked like to count everything for a loss for the sake of gaining Christ. He also talked about the reality of our citizenship as uh, Christians. And so in, in, a, in a nutshell, what Paul is saying, in light of everything that I just said, we talked about 
about humility. We talked about salvation through faith in Christ alone. We talked about that. We talked about the reality of what it means to be a citizen of heaven. In light of all of those things I just shared with you, I got to tell you something else. I got to tell you something else and I got to encourage you. Since you have these truths, here is my encouragement. And Paul tells them to stand firm. And he does so with endearing language, right? He calls them uh, his brothers. He loves and he longs to see them. His joy and his crown, his beloved. He says, stand firm. In light of everything that I just told you, in light of everything that I just wrote to you that you just read, I need you to stand firm. I need you to stand firm. And this language of standing firm is not language that suggests that we're going to be marching forward or even that we're going to be some sort of Christian army that invades. But this language of standing firm is a defense kind of language. He is saying to stand firm on the ground that Christ has already conquered. He's not telling you to do anything else because Christ has already finished it. And so he's saying, in light of what Christ has already done for you, in light of what Christ is doing in you, in light of what Christ is doing through you, that's the ground that I need you to stand on. And I need you to dig your heels into the ground and stand firm on that gospel truth. I'm not telling you to march forward. I'm not telling you to invade. I am telling you to be prepared. I am telling you to stand firm firm on ground that has already been conquered. You see, Jesus waged war against Satan, sin, and demons, and has been victorious through his life, his death, and resurrection. And as a result, we hold the ground that he has already conquered on our behalf. And so he's telling the Philippians, as he tells us, to stand firm, rooted, grounded in the truths of the gospel, in the truth of the finished work of Christ. Before we get into any of the practical stuff, before we get into any of the stuff that's going on in the church, before we see what it looks like for you and me to respond to some of the things that he's going to share, before any of that, we must stand firm. When I was uh, in, in wrestling in, in high school and, and in college, the biggest drills uh, or, or, or the, the most tedious drills that we did were that of our stance. Because if you had a poor stance, someone could take you down, whether it's with a single leg or a double leg, whatever. They could take you down, all right? And so some of the most tedious drills that I hated, oh my gosh, it was just about standing and creating a base so that you can defend yourself, so that you can defend yourself against an attack and all sorts of different things. Your position on how you stand is incredibly important, but you're only as strong as the ground uh, that you're standing on. So what is it that you stand on? Man, is it, is it, do you actually stand in the finished work of Jesus? Do you stand in the ground that he has conquered? Or are you trying to come up with new things? Are you trying to come up with different things? If your foundation is faulty, so will your stance be. And so he encourages us to stand firm. And then he transitions into verse 2. And he says, I entreat Yudia, Yodia, and I entreat Sintiq, Sintiq, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me together, with Clement 
and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Here's what's going on. There is tension and disunity in the church. And the members of the church, the members of the church in Philippi, they're becoming anxious because of what's going on inside of the church. They're becoming anxious of what's going on inside of the church, but they're also becoming anxious because of what's going on outside of the walls of the church. See, they're on the verge of persecution. We've been talking about this. They're on the verge of being persecuted, but at the same time, there are already people, we looked at this in chapter 1 and in chapter 3, that there are people trying to sway them away from the faith. So there is tension and disunity inside the walls of the church, and now there is tension and stuff happening outside of the walls of the church. And so he addresses these two women. He calls them out by name uh, for a couple of reasons. He calls them out by name because, one, they're dear to him because they have served side by side with him. Two, more than likely, the church knows who they are. Uh, and, and then three, he's going to invite someone else. He doesn't say who it is, but he invites someone else to actually be the third party to sit down with them so that they would be reconciled to one another. See, one of the things that happens when there is tension inside of a church is uh, as anxiety begins to increase in members, people feel like they need to pick a side. People feel like they need to pick a side, and that's what's happening right now. There are these two women. They labored side by side with Paul. In other words, they contended for the gospel with Paul. And now what he is saying is that they need to be reconciled in the gospel. And so because there is some separation and disunity, people are starting to become anxious. Not just anxious because they're having some argument, but because they're feeling forced to pick a side. They're feeling forced to pick a side. And so when Paul uses the word, I entreat, he says it two times. He says that he, what he's talking about is that he is begging them. He is begging them to sit down and to be reconciled with one another, for them to agree in the Lord. That means that he wants them to have the same mind. Going back to what we talked about earlier, that if we're going to be of one mind, that we ultimately need to fix our eyes on Jesus first. Our minds must be renewed. And he's saying, man, I need you to be of one mind. And if you're going to be of one mind, I need you to sit down and I need you to hash things out. I need you to hash things out because anxiety is increasing in the church. People feel like they need to pick a side. You need to do business with whatever is going on. And so he invites a third party to speak into them. He says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. That word help is an imperative. In other words, he is using it with urgency and a call to action. He is not just suggesting, hey, at community group, if you think about it, maybe sit down with these women, you know, schedule something on Google Calendar, and maybe you can meet them at Samia and talk about it, right? No, he is saying, he, you know, when he says, help these women, he's saying, I need you to pull them aside, to sit down with them, to have them hash out whatever's going on, to squash whatever beef they have, and so that they would be reconciled, okay? There is tension and disunity and anxiety growing in the church. I need you to address this. And he's doing it with urgency, and so for a minute, I'd like to talk a little bit about reconciliation. Not much, but I would like to talk a little bit about reconciliation. Specifically inside the walls of the church. Reconciliation includes forgiveness. And I want to talk about that uh, as, we, as we move on. But reconciliation includes forgiveness. But check it. it is, 
the kind of forgiveness that is earnest, that is, that is genuine, and it is the kind of forgiveness that you give because you understand that you've been forgiven of much. Some of you miss that. And you make tons of excuses about not reconciling to one another. Reconciliation also does not mean that things go back to the way they were. But it does mean that whatever beef was there is now squashed. It also means that if whatever beef was there is now squashed, it means that you have canceled and put out that bitterness. Many times, the reason people are bitter, and this may be you, is because you want to be bitter. And so you refuse to squash things. And what bitterness does, we see in Scripture, is that bitterness consumes. It consumes the heart, and it hardens the heart. And you'll come out with so many excuses, and man, I got a verse or two, and whatever. And all you're doing is trying to justify your bitterness. The point of forgiving someone in reconciliation is so that you would have personal freedom, is so that you would guard yourself against any bitterness. Reconciliation is a process. I'm not, we're not talking about the process right now. And I'm sure in many cases, it can be kind of muddy. Okay, we're not talking about the process. If you'd like to, hunt me afterwards. But at the very least, there, are, there is some common ground that comes with reconciliation. It's that it involves forgiveness. It involves you forgiving because you've been forgiven of much and for the sake of personal freedom so that you would block and cancel and guard against any and all kinds of bitterness. And so we're going to talk about a bunch of other things in this section, but I would strongly urge you that during time of communion and prayer, that you would sit in this for a little bit. Perhaps there is someone that you do need to talk to. I don't know. Perhaps there's someone that you do need to talk to. And for you, you might think, well, it's not that big of a deal. We're guarding against bitterness right now. So maybe you do need to talk to them. Maybe you do need to squash things. Maybe you do need to work through things. So set your pride aside for the sake of agreeing in the Lord. That would be my first admonishment to you all. When we choose not to address those things, we create tension in the church. Anxiety begins to go up. And just like what's happening here, people feel like they got to pick a side. And you force people to feel that way when you don't address these things. And at that point, it becomes more about you than it does about the gospel. So we continue. Paul writes in beginning of verse 4, 
So he says, man, therefore, stand firm in the Lord, right? Uh, man, fight for unity. And then he gives, them, uh, he gives them seven commands to do. Because, man, when anxiety starts to creep up, people start to freak out. Well, what do we do? How do we combat against it? What is it that we need to do? How do we, how do we defend against this? And so he gives seven commands. Beginning in verse four, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice in the Lord. I'll, I'll read through verse six. Let your reasonableness be made, uh, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He opens up with an emphasis on rejoicing. This is one of the major themes in Philippians where he talks about joy. Here's what I'll say about joy and anxiety before kind of breaking these verses down. Man, do you know uh, joy is, is a lifestyle, not based on circumstance, do you know what the opposite of joy is? It's not sadness. It's a lack of repentance. That's what the opposite of joy is. It's a lack of repentance, right? How do you combat anxiety? You combat anxiety with prayer. And as we dive into prayer in just a minute, uh, man, just like bitterness, the reason we don't pray is because we don't want to. That's it. The reason we don't pray is because we don't want to. It's not about time. It's about actually wanting to do it. So moving forward, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So he's telling them, man, find joy in God, in the work of Jesus. Find joy in what God has accomplished and is doing. Don't find joy in the circumstance because right now the circumstance is a little muddy. And if you try to find your joy in that circumstance, it's continually, constantly, and always going to fail you. And so he reminds them, rejoice. It doesn't mean that things don't need to be addressed. It doesn't mean that conversations don't need to be had. It doesn't mean that we don't need to go get a referee. It means that we're not going to put our faith in that situation. Instead, we're going to place our faith in God, his finished work, and Christ alone. And because of that, we can address these things because we are of one mind. So rejoice. You can almost see someone, but he says, wait, rejoice right? He's like telling them to remind them of where their minds ought to be. It's not in the circumstance and it's not in the emotion. It's in the finished work of Jesus. So he says, rejoice, always rejoice again. And he goes on in verse five, let your reasonableness, that could also be translated as gentleness, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So when we find joy in the gospel, despite our circumstance, it's going to reflect it's going to reflect others in the church, so that means that's going to bring some of the anxiety down, which also means that we can speak into one another's lives, but it's also going to reflect to people who don't know Jesus. Because if anxiety, tension, and disunity continue to climb and rise within the church, people who don't know Jesus are going to say, see, you're no different. You're no different. And he says, the Lord is at hand. It's, a, it's an encouragement. Uh, man, I, I think of Psalm 145, verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Man, you can call out to him. That just because you find your joy doesn't mean you can't call out to God because it's hard. Do it. And so he goes on to say, do not be anxious. Some of you struggle with anxiety. I, I get that. I struggle with a lot of anxiety. And he says, do not be anxious about anything. To me, that is like the least encouraging thing I can hear. 
right? Especially when you're already filled with anxiety. It's like, oh, you know, just don't be anxious. Shut up. Like, why would you say that? You know what I mean? <laughs> it's kind of like a, the, 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 the picture, the husband and wife are in an argument. He's like, you just need to calm down. She's like, why would you say that? And it just gets worse. I feel the same way when someone's like, just don't be anxious. Be chill. I just want to punch him like over and over again. And, and I feel like that's what would decrease my anxiety. Um, I'm sharing too much. Anyway, <laughs> where was I? Do not be anxious, people. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer. So man, how do you combat against anxiety? How do we combat against anxiety within the church? By submitting ourselves to prayer. By submitting ourselves to prayer. And he, and he lists a couple of things. He says, but in everything, by prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So let's talk about prayer a little bit. When it comes to prayer, especially that first thing, he says, man, pray. Submit everything to prayer. Man, that means turning to God and emptying yourself. Turning to God and emptying yourself. Check it. And praying for others. We haven't gotten into supplication. We're going to talk about that or thanksgiving or your requests. Those are things that we're going to talk about. Right now, we're just talking about the subject of prayer. So what am I to do first? Turn to God, empty yourself completely, and pray for others. Maybe it's that person that you need to talk to. Maybe you know you were the one that, that jacked it up. But he says, in prayer, you're going to pray for others. Pray for others. The second thing in supplication that means it's a petition. That whatever it is you're bringing before God, you're submitting in humility with your knees on the ground. That you recognize how big and how good and how gracious and how generous God is and how much you are in desperate need of Him. Supplication ought to reflect our dependency on God. The third thing with thanksgiving. Here's the easiest way to talk about Thanksgiving, because I think all, many times we can be very, very uh, shallow about Thanksgiving, right? Oh yeah, just give thanks, right? Thanksgiving is preaching the gospel to yourself. Now, here's what I want you to notice. So we looked at prayer, supplication, and Thanksgiving. We haven't even gotten to your request. When we're looking at prayer, supplication, and Thanksgiving, you ought to be humbled more and more and more as you are in this process. That's what I love about lists. It gives you this process, right? Prayer, you're turning to God, you're emptying yourself, you're praying for others, and you're like, mm, my heart is softening and I don't like it. Supplication, you're forced to humble yourself or you will be humbled because then that means that you, man, maybe devalue the gospel or undermine grace. And so you're forced to wrestle with that and then you transition into Thanksgiving. And so you're like, oh, I gotta preach the gospel to myself. What's the gospel to myself? Man, that Christ died for the ungodly. And what's so beautiful about that statement is that it does not say Christ died for the ungodly and myself. No, homie, you were a part of the ungodly. <laughs> right? Thanksgiving, man, ought to bring glory to God because we preached the gospel to ourselves that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Without thanksgiving, all we're doing is complaining to God. Without thanksgiving, all we're doing is complaining to God about what should be and hasn't been. And then you submit your requests. 
But even that, there's like, there's like a caveat when you submit your request. Because when we submit our request, theologically, we need to understand something. We need to understand that the way or the reason we are able to submit our request is because we have access to the Father through the work of the Son. Blood was spilt so that you would have access to the Father. This entire process of prayer ought to humble us and bring us to our knees. That's how you combat anxiety. Listen to, uh, this is Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16, uh, in light of requests. The writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You have access to the Father because of the work of the Son. And in that access, you can approach the Father with confidence and boldness to receive mercy and to receive grace. Understanding that, then you can make your requests. The whole process, again, ought to humble us. Because it becomes more about the gospel and the gospel at work in us. You're forced to do business with your, uh, you're forced to do business with the condition of your heart in prayer. And if you skip out on these things, really, you're again, you're just complaining. You're just complaining, and perhaps that's why we don't pray. Perhaps we don't pray not only because we don't want to, but because I know if I pray, I'm going to be humbled, and I don't want to be humbled. I actually want to hold on to this bitterness because they're wrong and I'm righteous. You just blew it. If they only listened, if they only did something different, if they only understood, no. And even at that, as we walk through this process of prayer, you might be thinking to yourself, man, I know someone who could totally walk through this process. Yes, that's you. I'm talking to you. I'm not talking about whoever else you're thinking about. I'm talking to you. So stop resisting it. All you're doing is increasing your bitterness and pride. That's all you're doing. And so Paul continues. I believe this is verse 7. He continues, uh, and he says, Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, this is verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. The word and in verse 7 tells us that he's going to give us the result. When we submit ourselves to prayer, here's the result. This is the result. He says, and the peace of God. That's the result. When we submit ourselves to prayer, when we, man, submit ourselves to pray in every situation, that the only way we're going to combat anxiety is by, in everything, praying, he says, and the the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. What that means is that, man, human reasoning can't even begin to describe or talk about the peace of God because it only comes from him because he inevitably is peace. And so he says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind. It will guard your hearts and it will guard your mind. That's the result. The result is the peace of God. 
And what does the peace of God do? It guards your hearts and it guards your minds. And he's very intentional about using those two words. You see, when he's talking about guarding the heart, the reason he talks about it, Scripture mentions the heart about 800 times throughout the entire Bible. So it's kind of important. And the reason it's so important is because the heart is the center of our character. Who we are is dependent on the condition of our heart. And so the peace of God guards our heart. And the peace of God guards our mind. One thing that we ought to just understand is that the Christian life is a battle for our mind. It's incredibly important. It's incredibly important. Because, man, whatever comes into your mind is ultimately going to affect your heart and it's going to affect your affections. And so we'll continue. We're going to talk more about the peace of God, but we're going to continue. Verse 8. So Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if anything is, uh, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul is saying, as I mentioned earlier, that whatever comes into our minds ultimately affects our hearts and our affections. And in this, these two verses, our last two verses, what he is doing is saying, you. So let me back up a little bit in light of these two verses. From verses 1 through 7, he is addressing all in-house issues. Stand firm, fight for unity, fight to pray. Because anxiety is going to increase, so fight to pray. So he's given us some weapons. He's given us some practical application, right? Ephesians 6 in the armor of God, right? It goes on to say that all of the things that we put on are actually defensive with the exception of two things, the word of God and prayer. So in this section, he's telling us what to do when anxiety begins to creep up. It's essentially this giant in-depth reminder of prayer, prayer. And so he's addressing in-house issues. Now he begins to address things that are going outside of the walls of the church, and he is putting some ownership on you as Christians. He's saying in this section, right, in verses 8 and 9, that we need to discern and look at the culture through the lens of the gospel, not the other way around. That we need to look and discern at the culture through the lens of the gospel. And because the mind is so important, the only way we can look at culture through the lens of the gospel is if our minds have first been renewed. All right, that's Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's repentance by the renewing of your mind so that you would be able to discern the perfect, pleasing, good will of God. Don't be conformed. That's, that's kind of a big one. And so here he's going to give us eight virtues. And I'd actually like to begin at the end of verse 8 where he says, think about these things. These things are the things that he lists. And the word think on here is translated as, as careful calculation. Those of us who went to public school, got to work hard. Think is translated as careful calculation. It's also written in the present tense. In other words, he is saying, this is something that you ought to be doing, that you ought to be thinking through 24-7. This isn't something that you just think through when you're in front of it. This is, these are things you think about 24-7. And the reason he is pushing us to think and actually exercise our minds is actually if you go to Luke 10-27... 
is because the mind is so incredibly important. And if we are to set our minds on Christ, that means we ought to have been changed by Christ. And in Luke 10, 27, uh, Jesus says, where am I? Uh, 27, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. It's incredibly important that our mind is fixed on gospel truths. So let's jump into these eight things. He gives them eight virtues that should ultimately govern our ears, our eyes, our minds, the kind of entertainment we participate in. He says, whatever is, number one, true. You see, when it comes to these virtues, he's going to be looking at these virtues through the lens of the gospel. And he is saying, you need to do the same as you have been sent into the world, as you are among the culture of your city, of your town, wherever you're at. You need to use these eight things as a way of testing what you're going to do, what you would consider good or bad, right and wrong. And so he says, the first one is true, that it is real, it is authentic, that it is faithful. It is not distorted from God's word. Remember, we are looking at everything through the lens of the gospel. Whatever is honorable, that means it's worthy of respect. Just, that is the same word for righteous, that it conforms to God's standard. Pure, it's translated as as holy or, or holiness, that it is set apart. Lovely, that it is pleasing to God. Commendable, well spoken of by God. And then excellence and worthy of praise that that anything that reflects the holiness of God is what he's ultimately getting to. These virtues are the test that everything is filtered through. These are the virtues that determine what website we visit, what concert we attend, what movie we watch. These are the virtues that help us to discern. Now, what I want you to know on this is that these are virtues and he is putting the ownership on you and your spiritual maturity. This is not a legalistic list. This isn't do this, don't do that. He is saying test everything in light of what you know from Scripture with these virtues. He does not say, I need you to add more so you can come across so righteous and awesome because you're not. But at the same time, he's not saying, man, just let grace abound and let grace and grace and grace abound. Just keep doing it. You're okay. God forgives you anyway. He's putting the ownership on you. He is putting the ownership on you to discern what is good, pleasing, uh, what is good and pleasing to God by testing it with gospel truths. You see, we are to live a life that is distinct right? By the presence of the Holy Spirit because of the work of God in us? Yes. But that also means, that also means that we live a life of conviction, not compromise. Some of you will read these virtues and you're already making excuses so that you can go and do some things that you know you ought not to, and you're just coming up with a verse so that you can combat it. That's not conviction. That's called compromise. Some of you are becoming right now legalistic and saying, well, look how awesome I don't do these other things and look how great I do these other things. And you've completely missed it. Because to be legalistic means to add to the Word of God. And so you've compromised. Some of you 
compartmentalize. Some of you compartmentalize. You will look at this and you'll say, man, you're right. That does apply to uh, perhaps my home life. It applies to me on Sunday morning for worship. Uh, I don't think that really applies to me at my job. I'm kind of the boss. I know what I'm doing. You will compartmentalize the gospel. And when you compartmentalize the gospel, you begin to compromise the gospel. And when you compromise the gospel, eventually what happens is that it pours into the next section, and it pours into the next section, and it pours into the next section. In short, that means you lose your integrity. Perhaps because you have none. I don't know. You know uh, the word integrity, uh, what it means, right? Some people say it means honest, right? Yeah, that's, that's a definition, right? But it also means one or the same. And so when we look at that in, in, in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, our life, that I am the same here as I am at home, I am the same with my brothers that I am with my friends, right? That you are, that you are one, Right? So there's this analogy in light of integrity. There's this analogy, uh, I think I was sharing it with our staff a couple weeks ago. I don't remember. Maybe it was just Everett. Of, uh, of these boats. When boats, when ships are constructed, right, there is, uh, they, they construct this long, uh, I don't know anything about boats, but they construct this, this long hull, right? And the idea of the hull is that, man, if something hits, we're going to use the Titanic in just a bit. So if something hits, uh, an iceberg, all the water fills into that hole and then the boat sinks, right? It's just this long, hollow hole. And so when they designed the Titanic and they ended up designing the hole, right? What made it so cool was that they segmented the hole, right? They divided it up into sections. And the idea was, man, if we hit something like an iceberg, water will pour in, but it's only going to pour into some of the sections. It's not going to pour into the other sections, so the boat will stay afloat. We'll make it, right? That was the idea. And in theory, or on paper, or the whiteboard, it makes sense. That sounds awesome. What happened to the Titanic? It sunk, right? Here is the moral of that story. A hole in the boat is a hole in the boat is a hole in the boat. Some of you compromise by compartmentalizing. I have my Christian life, I have my home life, I have Sunday morning, I have community group, I have this secret life, don't talk about it, um, I have my friend life, and I have all of these other things. And when you begin to compartmentalize and compromise, or better, better say it, when you begin to compartmentalize, you have already compromised. And it'll spill over, and it'll spill over, and congratulations, you're the Titanic, right? These virtues again, are meant to be ways for us to discern gospel truths or to discern the culture using gospel truths. That's a better way of saying it. Not creative ways for you to be even more legalistic than you already are or for you to compromise more than you already have. And if that's, that's where you're at, I would beg you to repent. If you're compromising, then you're not fighting for prayer. If you're compromising, then you're not fighting for unity. If you're compromising, then your footing is gone. 
And even at that, if you want to argue, like, no, I got good footing, trust me. Maybe you do, you're just not a Christian. That's the whole point of this. And he says, so think on these things, that we are to live lives that are not only distinct, but lives that, that have conviction, not, not compromise. And then in verse 9, he continues. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Practice these things. Paul is talking about discipleship. He's talking about discipleship, one that has a goal on setting our minds and fixing our eyes on Christ through imitation. We looked at that last week and elsewhere in Scripture. Paul is constantly saying, man, imitate me. Be imitators of me. Some of your translations say, uh, follow me as I follow Christ. It's not because he's baller and awesome and excellent, but it's because he is saying, I'm going to point you to the one who is. I'm going to point you to the one who has it figured out. I don't have all the answers, but I know who does. And so when he says, man, all that you have received, he's talking about everything that he has taught them, everything that he has preached at them, uh, or excuse me, learned, received. Those are the letters that he has written to them, heard. This is what others, uh, what the Philippian church has heard about Paul from guys like Timothy and Epaphroditus. We looked at that in chapter two. And then seen, that they have seen him walk the walk when he was among them. And so he is ultimately talking about discipleship. Man, how you are going to best discern uh, these gods gospel truths, and in light of culture, is going to be done through discipleship, not just through figuring it out on your own because you're so cool. It's by discipleship and imitating other Christians so as long to the extent that they actually follow Jesus. And some of you, even at that, don't want to enter into discipleship relationships because you're the Titanic. No one else is going to get that if they were absent today, right? Like, uh, <laughs> right? like some of you don't want to enter into those kinds of relationships because you got it all figured out. You got it all segmented. It's on the whiteboard. You got a reason for X. You got a reason for Y. You got a reason for Z. That's cool. A hole in the boat is a hole in the boat is a hole in the boat. Stop making excuses. Stop making excuses. He's saying, think on these things. He's telling you like 24-7, you need to be thinking about gospel truths. You need to be thinking about gospel truths. And as you are thinking about these gospel truths, you need to practice them in discipleship relationships. Earlier, when he was talking about the women, he is inviting people to speak into their lives. Some of you need people to speak into your lives. I need people to speak in my life. Yet you refuse to. Maybe you refuse to because you just graduated college. Maybe you refuse to because you've been married 25 years. Maybe you refuse to because you're a 25-year-old who knows everything. I don't know. But you refuse to have others speak into your life. And when you do that, slowly but surely, you will begin to compromise the gospel and compromise your footing. And when you compromise your footing, everything else starts to crumble. Because now there are reasons or justifications for not fighting for unity. Well, you don't know what he did. And then there's reasons for not praying. I just don't have time. And there's, no, there's reasons for not seeking the peace of God to have the mind of God. Like, man, uh, you know, I'm just kind of trying to figure it out right now. I'm focusing on me right now. Like, that, those are the excuses. Those are the excuses. And so what he goes on to say in verse 9, practice these things. And there's that, that transition where he gives us another result. And the God of peace will be with you. Ultimately, what Paul is saying is that when we think and imitate in discipleship, the promise, there's a promise here. The promise is that God will be with you to give you his peace. That God will be with you to give you his peace. And when you have the peace of God, 
You've obtained the mind of Christ, which enables you to stand firm. It enables you to fight. It enables us to fight for unity. It enables you to combat against or to fight against anxiety by praying and submitting everything in prayer. The peace of God enables us to do all of these things collectively as a church, individually as Christians. That's the whole point of verses 1 through 9. And it's going to be hard, but we ought to fight for the peace of God so that we would have the mind of Christ. Fight for the peace of God so that we have the mind of Christ. And, and if you are a Christian and you're compartmentalizing, you're compromising, you're making excuses, uh, you got all the reasons... Repent. Turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus because he's already, the, he's already conquered the ground that you are to stand firm in. What are you trying to prove? The only thing you prove is that you devalue the gospel. The only thing you prove is that grace can be taken advantage of and that it's cheap. That's what you prove. Or that's what you're communicating, I should say. Repent. Repent of that. Trust in Jesus. Better yet, let me say it this way. What is it that you need to repent of today? Not after lunch? Whatever it is you're going? Right? Not tonight when it's just kind of quieted down and the kids are asleep? Like, no. What do you need to repent of now, what needs to change now? And if you don't know Jesus, you can come to know Jesus. And the promise of coming to know Jesus is that you would receive the peace of God. Scripture says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. In a moment, we're going to take communion. I would urge you, and I usually do uh, during that time, but I would urge you at this front end, don't waste it. And, and here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that when you dive into prayer, you need to make sure it's a good prayer so that God hears it. No, I'm saying it needs to be earnest and authentic. That's what it needs to be. It needs to be intentional. That time that you think you don't have, we're going to carve some out right now. So no excuses for all of us. I love you guys. Let's pray. God, as we close our time, as we close up our time, uh, Lord, I, I pray that through your spirit, we, uh, man, we, were, we would be convicted. We would be convicted of, of uh, not standing firm, uh, of thinking that we can do it on our own, or, or, or worse, thinking that we could do it better. God, I pray that we would be convicted for not fighting for one another instead of fighting with one another. God, that is all too common in too many churches. And so would we, may we be a people that fights for one another and not with one another. God, that we would also fight for, man, time of prayer, that we would fight against anxiety by submitting everything to prayer. That in prayer, you would humble us. That in prayer, you would reveal yourself to us. And that in prayer, our, the condition of our hearts would be softened. 
that we would still have uh, boldness and courage to come before you, but that our hearts would be changed as we make, the, make our way. And finally, God, would we be a people, may we be a people that fights for your peace, that we would fight for the peace of God, because as Christians, we have the mind of Christ. May we fight for that peace so that we would stand firm and so that we would fight well. God, we submit all of these things to you and before you. And as we walk into a time of tithes and offerings, God, would you continue to be at work uh, for us, in us, and through us, revealing uh, to ourselves, man, uh, selfish hearts, selfish hands, selfish minds, and that we would combat that right now by generous giving. That we would give generously because you demonstrated the ultimate form of generosity by sending your son to die on a cross for sinners. That we would uh, display the ultimate form of worship uh, by giving faithfully and cheerfully. That this isn't about us or our stuff or our money, but this is about the expansion of your kingdom and the spreading of your gospel. May you be at work in us uh, with those truths as we pray to you and continue to worship together as a church family. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen.